Here's my latest update for my experiment with the AC meter and two toy motors. Um, I've come to the conclusion that any inductive load connected to the meter makes the meter more complete. The meter is incomplete as it is. And any inductive load has to, the, the wire connections, the copper wire connections, have to be um, augmented or um, supplemented. Supplemented with iron windings surrounding it as a kind of coaxial shielding for against or to prevent the loss of magnetism, the loss of current. Because this goes back to um, the Oliver Heaviside solution to the transatlantic telegraph cable problem of the 1880s. Yet then, the only load was a little clicker, a little uh, clicker on the uh, opposite end of the, uh, the transmission line. Whereas here, the, the sole purpose of going to the trouble of having iron coaxial shielding surrounding a um, insulated copper wire is to supply uh, um, high efficiency of delivering current to an inductive load because a resistive load such as a light bulb does not need to worry about current. A light bulb, such as an incandescent light bulb, uh, consumes very little current. But I, um, I did an experiment today. I managed to get the uh, toy motors to turn, but only when the sufficient current was being delivered to them. I have in my possession tiny little micro mini um, solar panels. They're about, uh, let's say, three inches on a side and two inches on the other side. Um, something like that, three by two, and I have several of them, and I hooked them all up in series, thinking what smart, what a smart boy am I? Um, because all I have to do is deliver voltage, right? Wrong. <laughs> Motors consume current like crazy; they eat it up, and they can never get enough. They're hogs for current, which means they're hogs for wattage. Um. By comparison to other loads, such as an incandescent light bulb, you can apply 120 volts to a 100-watt light bulb, <clears throat> and yet it only consumes two-thirds of an ampere, so, you know, that's like nothing. Um, anywho, so that became very strong. That's what I came away with from that experiment, was that I learned a lesson on motors, because I really am not familiar with motors, you know. It's. I still marvel that they rotate at all. You know, to me, it's magic. <laughs> Truly, <laughs> it's quite a feat of human engineering. Um, but current plays a big part, extremely big part, in making that happen. At least in a DC motor case. Who knows about an AC? I don't know, right? Um, let's see. <clears throat> yeah, maybe the other way around. It may be that AC motors are so efficient that they don't consume a lot, whole lot of current. I don't know, especially under no-load conditions. Be that as it may, um, yeah, add a load and everything changes. Well, that has, can be said of any motor, I guess. Let's see, what else did I learn? Um, oh, so since the circuit, since the meter is incomplete and needs to be supplemented by another component to complete it, and I think this is the case in... Nathan Stubblefield's Earth Battery and in uh, Sierra Lamont's um, invention <laughs> that was never patented. 
that you have to include the loads, uh, load or loads, as part of the circuit. Not that it would ruin it, per se, but because it wouldn't function without it. Oh, but now I'm thinking it's going to matter where they are placed. So, my guess estimate for the meter situation is that it needs an inductive load um, shorting out the two terminals of the line, the input. Meanwhile, it needs a resistive load, such as a light bulb, shorting out the two terminals of the load side of the meter, namely the output side, the, the side facing in to the interior of the home. Um, <clears throat> and that's because that's the way things were a hundred years ago. So why don't we begin there at square one and replicate the conditions of a hundred years ago in which there were no motor loads inside the home a hundred and a hundred years ago or 113 years ago actually is the condition that this um, meter was designed because it was built in 1910. Um, but there was a motor load outside the home in parallel to its the two input terminals, the two line terminals, and that was the hydroelectric plant uh, or coal, if you prefer, um, rotary generator. Because rotary generators are motors. That's what they. <laughs> that's what I'm using this little toy DC motor as a generator, a DC generator, but. At the mo at least that's what I would like to do, um, but I have it on both ends, which doesn't make sense. So I need to have it only on one side, and the side that it needs to be on is the input side, on the outside of the home, so to speak, the line side. That means that the copper insulated copper wire connecting, well, it's actually copper plated aluminum. <laughs> Oops. Um, connecting the motor to the line side of the meter has to be wound with iron wire and not just a, a, an iron wire going down one side, a single strand. Uh -uh. It's got to be coiled to cover the entire surface area of that wire, copper insulated wire connecting the toy motor, the two leads of the toy, excuse me, the two leads of the toy motor to the two terminals of the line side of the AC meter. <clears throat> to, and then it has to be a single piece of iron wires and wrap around the chassis of the DC toy motor. And then the two ends of that wire, single wire, uh, will probably wrap around the backside, the cast iron backplate of the AC meter. Unless I try wrapping it around the aluminum shell and barrel-shaped uh, shell in the front, I don't know. Because segueing into the other idea I had from today's experiment, when I came away from it, uh, I had a single wire, an iron wire, bare, no zinc plating, connecting. Um, I tried connecting it in three different locations on the AC meter, and the other end of the wire went to 
the chassis on the underside of my RAV4 EV from 2002. About a yard long, let's say a meter long piece of iron wire. And furthermore, this evening I was thinking about the mass of iron involved. My car, it probably comes to no more than 2,000 pounds. It's going to be less. It's a 3,000 pound car and let's say 3,200. I, I, I can't remember the exact figure. And the battery pack is 1,100 pounds. Now, the Pierce Arrow from 1931 that Tesla supposedly ran an experiment or a demonstration um, was a 4,000-pound car, probably having a greater proportionality of iron in it than our modern-day cars have because we probably have plastic, glass, you know, more glass, whatever. <clears throat> That was some heavy car, and according to the story that Peter Savo tells, he was driving the car at 90 miles an hour, upwards, or beyond, or whatever, upwards of. Um, That's pretty fast for a 4,000-pound car. Of course, we don't know how, I don't know how long it took to accelerate to that speed. You know, maybe it took a while. Uh, Be that as it may, that's a very heavy car, meaning it has a lot of iron, twice as much iron. Literally twice as much as what my car possesses. So, connecting to the chassis of my car, I can expect half the horsepower. If I succeed in making use of William Lyne's uh, quotation of Tesla for every 200 pounds of iron, one horsepower is added to the output of his special generator. If I can translate or transfer any semblance of behavior from that situation from that device, the uh, Tesla special generator, which is uh, a little different than what a, a meter, I think. I could be wrong. Uh, it may be the same, uh, functionally speaking, just perform, uh, achieves it uh, in a different manner of speaking because it uses a reciprocating piston uh, uh, at 80 cycles per second while uh, the meter is something else at 60 cycles per second. It's a rotary aluminum disc instead of a reciprocating aluminum disc, which, or aluminum rod, excuse me. Um, I'm assuming it was an aluminum composition rod in his special generator. <coughs> so, where was I with that thought? Um, <coughs> um, let's see. Yada, 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 yada. Uh, ah, so three positions. I tried one of the terminal, uh, one of the screw terminals of the load side of the AC meter, but I couldn't connect to it readily, so then I switched. No. Then I tried uh, the eye. I found an eye hook on the back cast plate. I, I had overlooked it in my recent examination and it is on the back cast plate but it's made of bronze it's a tiny little screw that comes out towards the front it points towards the front it protrudes in the frontally direction away from the cast iron back piece that it's it's coming out of and it's made of brass meanwhile the brass pin with the little eyelet to receive an, uh, a wire is um, set into cast iron, a cast iron back piece. Meanwhile, 
There's another eyelet attached to the aluminum shell, the barrel-shaped shell that surrounds the register. And the bottom of that so-called drum-shaped shell is half aluminum and half glass window to look into the register to see the dials to see your consumption of power. I think it's a three-dial model. Yeah, they they came out with another model, uh, I think later or at the same time, that was a four-dial version, but mine is a three-dial. Be that as it may, we've got friction on the register dials, the gears, holding back the spinning of the aluminum disc in addition to the C-magnets. So we've got several different loads. We've got a mechanical load and we've got a magnetic load, which is interesting. I never uh, realized that before now. We have two types of load on that aluminum disc. That's very interesting. It might be significant. You know, I always thought, okay, we can throw away the... See, because they do that in Paul Scarvo... Um, William Line interview of 33rd Parallel uh, talking about the meter in the second half of the interview. Oh, let's just throw away the register. We don't need that. Well, maybe we do. Maybe we need two types of load on that aluminum disc. Wouldn't that be interesting if the original design of the water meter, of course, was not a meter, and so... The mechanical load was different, or but still similar, to what the register conveys. I don't know. That's a very interesting thought. Anyway, um, so don't throw away anything. <laughs> Moral of that story. Um, so, so there's an eyelet attachment location on the aluminum barrel shell and there's one on the cast iron back piece. What if the meter is in overunity condition set up you're supposed to connect both eyelets to let's say the opposite ends of a large iron mass or maybe it's a cylindrical mass or a uh, hollow egg or, or spherical or ellipsoidal iron mass, whatever the case may be, maybe it needs two connections. And it's interesting to note that you're passing through all three metals, if that's the case. Your current pathway for eddy currents. Because you've got the brass eyelet, and then it's attached to the iron back piece, to which is attached the aluminum shell that completes the picture. So you've, you've literally got Three three layers with iron in the middle, which was is not something I would expect. Logic for me would dictate putting uh, copper in the middle, but that's not the case. Iron is in the middle, and br- copper in the form of brass is on one outer side, and aluminum is on the other outer side. If we exclude or forget, ignore. Um, what, whatever uh, it, these two eyelets are connected to outside of the meter. Of course, it has to be iron wire to an iron mass, um, which actually completes four layers. Oh, my God, that's, a, that's symmetry. Because you've got iron on both sides, separated by um, 
you've got like a, a, a square table and you got iron sitting opposite on both sides of the table in two positions. Then on one side connecting the two iron positions along the circumference of the seating arrangement to the square table, you have brass. And on the other side, you've got aluminum. Whoa, now we're getting somewhere because isn't that one module of um, Eric, Eric Dollard's analog computer in which we have two coils, which I'm going to assume have iron cores on <clears throat> two opposite sides of that daisy chain module, usually daisy chain multiple modules. And then you have two capacitors um, on the two other opposite sides of that alternating pattern going around the, the circumference of that square module circuit, sub-circuit. Um, but in this case, the two capacitors are replaced by the substances of iron and copper. This is very interesting. Wow. Talk about the uh, reoccurrence of an archetype. That is cool. That is fascinating. Whoa. And so what that tells us then is that the two iron sections of that circular array, we have the liberty to increase the size of the iron to whatever amount we wish to increase power. Now see, I increased power by increasing modules and daisy-chaining them and then making other changes and improvements. But here we, we stick to just one module and we increase the mass of the iron core and if we cannot go any further then we add iron magnetically coupled to the iron core of the two coils of that Eric Dollar's analog computer and make and for the purposes of this analogy. Uh, but in this case, uh, the coils are elsewhere. I mean, you know, there's something else and uh, a voltage coil and a current coil on the meter and it's the core, the iron core that matters. How much mass of iron is there or mag magnetically coupled to there to add and supplement that iron mass in the core <clears throat> of what would have been the core of a coil, but in this case it's not. It's just the back piece of the... Uh, cast iron back piece of the meter on one side and some kind of iron mass with iron wire connecting on the other side. So this is very, so it's good I had this opportunity to talk about it because then I could visualize it in my head and see how it maps out. It, it's perfect. It actually looks very promising. But that's for the grounding so to speak a two-point grounding. See now, if you have coax, you can ground it either one point or two points. If it's one point, then, I mean, if you ground the, sh the, the coaxial shielding of a coaxial cable, you know, having nothing to do with the, the copper core that's carrying the information, but the coax shielding, if you ground only one end at one terminal, uh, one, one end of that um, transmission line, coaxial uh, transmission line. That's called considered electrostatic grounding. 
But if you ground both ends, it's considered electromagnetic grounding, which makes sense in this case because we're dealing with iron. And the properties of iron is magnetism, which is the field effect of current. So we're going to want an electromagnetic dual grounding. We're going to want two grounds. But it's fascinating that it, goes, it creates a circular ar arrangement to that ground, that loop, that circuitous ground, in which iron alternates with copper, back to iron, and then to aluminum to complete a four-part cycle of layerings, circumferential layerings. That's very interesting. Wow, this recording has proved to be more fruitful than I expected just by talking it through and visualizing it. But at least it, it does come on the heels of my first experiment. I finished setting it up the last, uh, the last time I was at my lab, <laughs> if I can call it that. Yeah, I might as well. And today was the first time I actually got to run it to, to make sure all the connections are sound and the toy motors... I have pieces of tape on the shaft so that, to act as a kind of one-arm propeller so that I can very easily see that it's either wiggling and not turning because I don't have enough current. That's That happened initially. So I used one solar panel. No, I used four solar panels in series, and that's all they did was wiggle. They could not rotate. And I thought, well, gee, that's odd. I got tremendous voltage here. What's the problem? Could it be a lack of current? And this is where I got the, my lesson of the day that uh, motors are based on current. They're not based on voltage. Um, they're touted that way, I suppose, uh, but it's really current. They're current-oriented devices. So when I took two out of, uh, of those panels and uh, threw away the, uh, ignored the other two, and I connected those two in, in uh, series with each other to create a short to each other, a circuitous loop so that all the current is spinning around uh, in, among those two panels. And then I connected a single line connection to each of those two connections going to the two terminals of the DC motor connection. And that's odd to me because it tells me, well, how the hell am I delivering current if I'm shorting out to the solar panels themselves. But see, now I forgot. See, that's why I had to talk through this recording. Um, a solar panel is not like a battery. It's not a complete circuit. It's more like a capacitor because there's no completion. So I'm not shorting out anything. In reality, what I have are two capacitors that are light-sensitive, um, and I'm connecting uh, the plate of one to the plate of the other, and then circularly the plate of the other, uh, the lead of the other side back to the first side of the former uh, of the first uh, capacitor, creating a loop. But it's a broken loop because it's broken in two places. It's two hemispheres of conductivity broken in two places by the capacitor by the silicon wafer, whatever it is that a solar panel is made out of. So the current is traveling from one solar panel to the other and from the other to the one. Um, okay. 
So what does that mean in terms of connection to um, a center tap connection, shall we say, uh, to the two terminals of a toy DC motor? Um, because one half of that center tap connection between the two uh, solar panels is pushing and the other is being pulled away or stagnant. Or half of it goes to the solar panel and half goes to the toy motor. So why should it work, though? If, if I had four solar panels in series... Oh, no, 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 because then I'd be getting, in this situation, I should be getting, oh, God, uh, oh, no, the motor, the toy motor is a short. It completes the path. So it's kind of like crossing a short across the two ends, the two sides of the two capacitors, uh, being connected to each other. Uh, well, actually, you, uh, potentially, you can create an X out of uh, double capacitors that are uh, connected to each other in a loop because you'll have one diagonal short is one motor and the other diagonal short is the other motor. And I think that's what I did in this two-motor setup. I'm not sure, but I think so. Um, maybe, maybe not. Anyway, um, so that's why the current flows at full force and double the force because of the two solar panels. I couldn't figure out why that was, why I got rotation to, um, the motors when I did it this way because it didn't make any sense. You know, how can I be getting the full amount of current of each solar panel because I'm shorting things out. No, I'm not. The motor is the short, and so the motor gets all of the current that has been doubled because it's getting it um, from the two solar panels simultaneously. Okay. So the, apparently those solar panels don't put out enough current for a toy motor. It takes two solar panels um, connected in parallel with each other to provide double the current at equal the voltage to uh, properly power the toy motors. That means that the um, although the motors are rated for 3 volts minimum, 12 volts maximum um, and it gets faster RPM the higher voltage you go uh, you still need a minimum uh, current. So if I reconnect or reconfigure the solar panels in my next experiment such that I increase the voltage somehow while still delivering twice the current of a single panel, so that would be two in parallel and two or more in series, making a quadrature of four, six, eight, you know, a multiple of two, four, uh, a multiple of, two, of of four, six, or eight, then I'd have twice or three times or four times the voltage of a single panel which should increase the RPM but if I try to do three panels in parallel um, g delivering three times the current of a single panel I may not get a faster rotation speed that would be an interesting experiment 
you know, because I really don't understand motors, and I really got to play with it to to try to figure, <laughs> to try to get an understanding, even if it's a modicum of understanding. Anyway, um, this is my update for the moment. Um, so there it is. I'm having fun with it, and uh, it is good. So I have to do a recording after each experimental session to help me think through completely, more completely, what I what I need to do, how I need to see the situation, so that I can better understand what's going on, and better appreciate all of the different particulars. You know, or otherwise, I'm just flying blind, you know. Try this, try that. Like, you know, the beginning days of simulation work was like that. But now, I can scenario it in my brain if I talk it through with you guys and gals. Make believe you're my audience, even though I'm talking to my cell phone. Because then I can... um, engage my visual cortex in my brain for some strange reason. I don't know why. <laughs> talking engages it and not talking to, fails to engage it. So I fail to imagine, you know, what I'm dealing with. I fail to visualize it if I'm just thinking to myself. But if I'm talking out loud to myself, I can actually visualize the situation automatically without any effort. It just turns on the visual cortex of my brain. Isn't that weird? Weird wiring in my brain. Oh well. Anyway, enough said.